Well, good morning, Northland. It is good to be with you. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Acts. It's in the New Testament, Acts chapter 1. We have this week and next week for our Made for Mission series, and then it will be over. But one of the things that I want you to realize is that we have been laying a foundation, so you will hear terminology from this series in the coming days, weeks, months, and even years, because we were made for, everybody say it, mission. All right, so here's the question that I have right out of the gate. When you think of the word revolution, what comes to your mind? When you think of the word revolution, what comes to your mind? Beatles, yeah, Beatles. You say you want a revolution, you know. You always, yeah, anyways, all right, so I I guess that comes to your mind. Uh, I I remember growing up, Kurt Franklin, he sang a song, do you want a revolution, woo, woo. Yeah, so I, I, you know, I was this little country little bumpkin singing that song, trying to rap. It was pretty funny, you know, so I couldn't keep up with him. But so maybe you think of those songs, but I, I, I would dare say that you probably think of the American Revolution. That may be one of the first things that come to your mind, and so was when uh, those who were living in the uh, colonies, they're like, you know, we're really tired of the king telling us what we can do and what we can't do, and we're just tired of paying taxes without representation. We're just going to rebel, and so it was the American Revolution. Uh, Maybe you think of the Industrial Revolution, and in the Industrial Revolution, there were some shifts. One shift was from hand tools to machines, so you had steam engines, cotton gins, electric motors, electricity. There was also this shift from the rural areas to the urban centers. Then you had mass mass production, cheaper goods, increase of jobs, and then life overall dramatically improved. Now, when I think about the Industrial Revolution, I promise you, I actually think about the carousel of progress there at the Magic Kingdom. And so there's that song, there's a great big beautiful tomorrow. Like, I know it probably just got stuck in your head and you're cursing me right now. Like, I understand when, when I go, when I go and sit through the carousel of progress, I just have that song in my head for the entire day. But maybe you also think about the technological revolution where we're kind of still in that but it's where everything was enhanced. So you have communication. Uh, it was enhanced. Now we have smartphones. Now we can have a video chat. Now we have not just any kind of internet. It's gone from dial-up to now fiber. I mean, this is amazing. If you don't have fiber, let me just say, it's amazing. We have fiber at our house. And you're like, oh man, I haven't got fiber yet. Well, it should be coming your way. But, but you know, medicine was enhanced, transportation was enhanced, energy enhanced. There's also this shift in the technological revolution from urbanization to globalization because everything's been enhanced. Uh, we now can connect with people all over the globe. And so maybe you think about those things, the American Revolution, the Industrial Revolution, and the Technological Revolution. And let me define revolution so that we're all on the same page. And I'm going to share two definitions. The The first definition of revolution is a drastic and far-reaching change in ways of thinking and behaving. It can also mean an overthrow of a government power or social order and an institution of another one. Now, I got a question, and I want you to participate. And if you get it wrong, it's okay. God still loves you, all right? Here's the question. Why are revolutions ignited? Why are revolutions ignited? 
Because uh, you got, yeah. Okay. What else? All right, Shane. Okay. All right. Here's the answer. And the answer is dissatisfied. Like I had one yell out in last gathering, anger. And uh, one of the things I learned about uh, anger and counseling is that anger is just a secondary emotion. You got to go find the, you you know, we have a feelings wheel at our house. And so if you're angry, you've got to go and point to the area of the wheel of why you're angry. So dissatisfaction is the reason why people are angry because the, the product or the idea or the government has not met your perceived needs. And so a revolution is ignited around your dissatisfaction. And so somebody came out to said, you know, it reminds me of that song, Can't Get No Satisfaction. Uh, was, I don't know, maybe today is just a music day for me. <laughs> so, but, but, but people are dissatisfied. Now here's, a, here's another question. How do revolutions spread? So they are ignited because of dissatisfaction. How are they spread? I'm just gonna give you the answer. People who have experienced the revolution, they now disseminate and distribute the revolutionary concept, product, or government. So they spread via people who disseminate and distribute the revolution. So when you think about what happened in scripture, Adam and Eve ignited a revolution. You see, God had created the world. It was beautiful. It was good. It was harmonious. Everything operated as God wanted it to operate. And then God had put Adam and Eve in the garden, said, you can have free reign in the garden. You can have from any tree in the garden except this one tree. And the day you eat of this tree, you will die. Well, Adam and Eve ate from that tree. They sinned. They rebelled. They committed treason. They ignited a revolution. It was a far, it was a drastic and far-reaching change in ways of thinking and behaving. Why? Because God had created mankind to reflect his glory in every sphere of life. But here they are. They're like, God, we don't want to live under your rule and reign. We don't want to be part of your government. We want to overthrow you. And now there's this drastic and far-reaching change in ways of thinking and behaving. And so we're living in this human revolution, this kingdom of man revolution. But God wasn't too keen on letting this revolution be final. But he promised and he planned to ignite his own gospel revolution to redeem a people from all peoples that they might reflect his glory in all spheres of life. And this gospel revolution, it's a good news revolution. Everybody say good news. It's a good news revolution. It's not bad news. It's good news. The bad news is that we rebelled. The good news is that God loved us too much to leave us in our rebellion. And just so that you know, this is the Buck Wild sermon, just FYI, I've been telling you that for weeks. So let me define gospel revolution. It is the activity of God made possible by the death and resurrection of Jesus, by which he is making all things new and thus turning the world right side up. You see, when Adam and Eve sinned, they turned the world upside down. It wasn't supposed to be that way. But the good news is that through Jesus' death and his resurrection, he is making all things new and turning the world right side up. Now, here's the main point I want to flesh out for the remainder of our time. God's gospel revolution meets our deepest dissatisfactions. 
It transforms us into the most powerful distribution force, and it reorients us towards the most glorious destination. Now, I don't think this could be more clearly seen than in Acts 17. You say, I thought, Josh, you told us to turn to Acts 1. I did. But in Acts 17, that takes place 40, 50 years after Acts 1. And I want you to listen to this statement because the church, they had moved into the area of Thessalonica. And as Paul and his team got to Thessalonica, there's a city official. He's lost. He's far from God, but he has heard about the church. And he utters these words, these men who have turned the world upside down, they've come here as well. I want you to think about that. Here's a man, 40, 50 years after the birth of the church, that has heard about these people called Christians. And he knows that they're in their city. And all he can say is that these men who have turned the world upside down. Church, I want you to hear me loud and clear. People who are far from Jesus, they ought to be able to look at our life and look at what we say. And they ought to perceive that we are turning their world upside down. But in all actuality, God's using us to demonstrate how he's turning the world right side up. So when they look at Northland Church, they ought to see how God is making all things new, how he's turning things around and how he's turning things right side up. And so how is he going to do that? Well, Acts 1 tells us. So with that in mind, will you stand as we honor the reading of God's word and hear hear what our king has to say to us this morning. So Dr. Luke, he's the one who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. So this is his second book, and it's on the bestseller list. Here it is. It's in my former book. Here's what Luke writes. Theopolis, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After Jesus gave instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was, everybody say it, Jesus is alive. All right. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the what? On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the... Then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are it you? I, I could just imagine some of these disciples. Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? I mean, that's the way. Because in some sense, what we'll see, they just kind of really missed the boat. But, but anyways, they're like, hey, is this, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive, everybody say it. That's dunamis. That's dynamite power when the what holy spirit and it's really the who comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in jerusalem and in all judea and samaria and to the ends of the earth after jesus said this he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid them hid him from their sight Now, the disciples, they're looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white 
stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? I'm thinking, now, who are these two men to ask such a silly question? Well, Jesus was here, now he's not. That's why we're looking up into the sky. Here's your sign. But, but here's what they say. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will, everybody say those two words. All right, let's say it louder. Jesus is coming back. And in the same way, you have seen him go into heaven. Father, we pray that you would be glorified. Jesus, may you be the center of this message. Spirit, will you go to work shaping and forming us into new creation? I also pray, Spirit, that you will draw people far from Jesus, that today they might experience a gospel revolution in their life, a a drastic and far-reaching change in ways of thinking and behaving, that today they might surrender themselves to King Jesus, letting Jesus be Lord and Savior and King over their life. So, Spirit, go to work. May we leave different than when we came here this morning as a result of your power in our midst as we lift high the name of King Jesus for the glory of our Father in heaven. And it's in his name we pray. All God's people said, all right, you may be seated. So in this passage, we see at least three elements of God's gospel revolution that meets humanity's greatest dissatisfactions, transforms them into the most powerful distribution force, and reorients them towards the most glorious and brightest destination. Element number one, God's gospel revolution has the greatest king and kingdom. Every revolution has a leader and a cause that has struck a chord with people. And when we look at Jesus and we look at the kingdom that he ushered in, it is the greatest king and it's the greatest kingdom. Now let's Let's look first at Jesus being a revolutionary king that meets our deepest desires. Throughout the Gospels, throughout the book of Acts, and the rest of the New Testament, the Bible speaks of Jesus being the revolutionary king and leader who has inaugurated this perfect kingdom that really is the desire of every human heart. Now, from the very beginning, Jesus was revolutionary. You say, well, how was Jesus revolutionary? Well, here's how he was revolutionary. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit and he was born of a virgin. No one else has been conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. And then also he lived a sinless and perfect life. No other human being on planet earth has been sinless and perfect. But Jesus, he was sinless. He was perfect. He didn't abuse power. One of the things that I would say that leads to a dissatisfaction today of even our political leaders is because of this thing of abuse of power. Even even in churches, we see an abuse of power. Jesus never abused his power. He was inclusive, yet exclusive. He invited all in. Didn't matter who you were. Didn't matter what you'd done. Didn't matter what race you were, ethnicity you were. He invited everyone in, but he gave parameters. He was demanding, but not coercive. He never coerced anybody to love him, to follow him. He forgave and he was faithful. He was winsome and he was wise. He was generous. He was servant-oriented. He was sacrificial and he elevated everyone around him. He made them better. Jesus was, I want you to listen to this statement, church. 
Jesus was and he is the king, the prince, the knight in shining armor, the friend, the boss, the president. He's the man's man. He's the leader that meets the deepest need of every human heart. Doesn't matter what gender you are. Doesn't matter the socioeconomic status you have. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. Jesus, he is the revolutionary leader that meets the deepest needs of every human heart. And throughout history, there have been a lot of revolutionary leaders that have come on the scene that has either ignited a revolution around a product or an idea or an overthrow of a government. I think of I think of revolutionary leaders like Alexander Graham Bell, Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, the Wright brothers, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Al Gore, who invented the internet. <laughs> Just joking. <laughs> Just make sure you're paying attention. Buddha, Muhammad, Joan of Arc, Constantine, Alexander the Great, Martin Luther, George Washington, Napoleon, Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, Abraham Lincoln, Gandhi, Eleanor Roosevelt, Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King Jr., Nelson Mandela, but Jesus, out of all of those revolutionary leaders, Jesus is the greatest revolutionary king to ever walk the face of planet Earth. Now, you have to ask yourself, why? Why is he the greatest? Well, here's the thing. If someone can predict their death and he can predict his resurrection and he died and he was buried and he rose from the dead, then as one pastor would say, if someone can predict his death and his resurrection and actually pull it off, you better attach your life to his wagon. He's the revolutionary king. And second, did you notice what Jesus was teaching on? The kingdom of? Now, let's look at the kingdom Jesus inaugurated. Now, just so that you know, from from the beginning, from Genesis all the way through Revelation, as we'll see next week, you see this theme of God's kingdom. You see, God's kingdom was initiated in the garden. God's kingdom was foreshadowed in Israel. It was inaugurated or it was kind of institute started in Christ's first coming. The kingdom of God is reflected in the church. You see, we're, we're not the kingdom. We're just a reflection of the already but not yet kingdom. And then you see the kingdom of God consummated or, or fully instituted or restored at the very end. Hey, Josh, what, what is God's kingdom all about? Well, God's kingdom actually is all about his characteristics, his nature, his attributes. That is the reason why when you see Jesus institute God's kingdom, when he inaugurate God's kingdom, it's in God's kingdom, the lame, the blind, the diseased are healed. The dead are raised. The outcasts are invited in. The stranger is made family. The hungry are fed. The poor have more than enough. The naked are clothed. The prisoner is forgiven and free. Forgiveness is extended. Grace and mercy overflow. Love abounds. Generosity comes naturally. Righteousness is exercised. Holiness is pursued. Justice rolls like a river. Everyone who is behind and united around the king and peace and flourishing are the results of God's kingdom. And if we were honest, 
even those who don't even know Jesus, who are not part of the church, if we were honest, we all long to be part of this kind of kingdom. We want this. We desire this. But only Jesus can bring us this kingdom. And if you look at what Jesus taught about the kingdom, the scope of God's kingdom, every realm of life. It impacts all of our relationships. It impacts your marriage. It impacts your parenting. It impacts your workplace and how you deal with your coworkers, how you deal with customers. It impacts your friendships. It impacts every relationship that you would ever have, even those that you would deem, quote, unquote, the other. The kingdom of God impacts, affects that relationship. The kingdom of God affects culture. It affects beliefs and values and cultural artifacts. The kingdom of God tells us what we do receive. The kingdom of God tells us what we reject in our culture. The kingdom of God helps us reimagine things in our culture like the goodness of work or generosity or creation care. The kingdom of God helps us redeem things in our culture. How we view others it redeems pain and suffering. It redeems identity. It redeems purpose. You see, the scope of God's kingdom not only affects our relationships and our culture, but even how we operate. We see everything we have, our time, our talents, and our treasures as God's. They are his resources that he has given us, that he has gifted to us, that we might use them in a way that honors him, that pleases him, that glorifies him for the good of others. Let me ask you, who are you following? What revolutionary leader are you following? Maybe you remember in the series Transitions, I talked about how in every transition there is, anybody remember, there's a transformation and you are either being transformed into the image of Adam or the image of who Jesus and so here's the question are you following the revolutionary leader Adam further into sin and darkness and depravity are you following the revolutionary king jesus who's moving you further into god's kingdom deeper into god's kingdom deeper into salt and deeper into light and then what kind of kingdom are you part of are you really part of the kingdom of man or are you part of the kingdom of god the inbreaking kingdom of god the second element God's gospel revolution has the most powerful distribution force. You see, revolutions not only need a leader and a cause or a purpose that leads and solves the deepest issues and dissatisfactions of people. They, they need a powerful distribution force that becomes the vehicle that disseminates and distributes the revolutionary idea, concept, or power Acts 1 tells us who the powerful distribution force is. But first of all, let us look at the power. So the power behind the distribution force is none other than the Holy Spirit. That is why many, many scholars would say that the book of Acts is not the acts of the apostles. It's the acts of the Holy Spirit. The apostles could not do, could not accomplish what we see in the book of Acts. Only the Spirit of God in and through them could do that. 
The Holy Spirit empowered Jesus throughout his life. Luke shares how the Holy Spirit came upon Mary in order for her to conceive Jesus. Luke 3, during Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. Luke 4, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Uh, Jesus expressed to the apostles, you cannot do what I'm sending you to do apart from the Spirit. The Spirit will be your helper. The Spirit will be your God. The Spirit will empower you to do and to be who I've called you to be and what I've called you to do. Without the Holy Spirit, the gospel revolution would not be ignited, nor would it flourish. The Holy Spirit is the power that advances the mission of God in the world, turning lives and communities and cities and even nations right side up. The Holy Spirit is the power that emboldens people to proclaim the gospel and empowers them to live out the implications of the gospel. The Holy Spirit is the power that breaks through barriers, overcomes obstacles, sustains through storms and sorrows, motivates us in our messes, supersizes our strength, energizes us when we are exhausted, prays for us when we are perplexed, and the Spirit of God gives us clarity when we are confused. Church, listen to this. I would rather us, I would rather us, the, the church at Northland, I would rather us be filled with the Spirit for one week and see what He would do through us than a hundred years of operating in our own power. And what I'm afraid of is that when you look at the church by and large in the West, we are trying to operate ministry and mission under our own power. We need the Spirit in us, on us, and moving in and through us. Sir, you need the Spirit to be the husband God has called you to be. Ma'am, the wife God has called you to be. Parents, the parents you were. Listen, I mean, we, we, we got two teenagers and one, one's, one's trying to get there. And I promise you, all the things that we just are, are, are dealing with and just parenting, not, not just, I mean, just, just in parenting, just normal teenagers. I'm like, there's not a book. I, I need the spirit. Amen. And I'll say this as a pastor, I have not led a church to where we're going. No pastor has. So there's, sure, there's some good books out of there, out there that I could read. I need the spirit. Amen. Now let's look at the distribution force. The distribution force will be transformed human beings who have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the glorious light of King Jesus. The church is the distribution force of God sent into the world. Now, just from the first chapter in Acts, we see at least three characteristics. They are connected to Jesus. That means that they listen to Jesus they, they, they hear his instructions, they, they listen to his teaching, and then they obey. Let me ask you this. Is that what you're doing? 
Are you connected to Jesus? I'm not just saying, are you interested in him? If you are a follower of Jesus, are you connected to him? Are you listening to him? Are you listening to his teaching? Are you absorbing? And then do you want to obey? Uh, Notice also they are faith-filled and fearless. You remember in John 20, we looked at that passage a couple weeks ago. They're in an upper room. They got the doors locked because they're scared to death. That what happened to Jesus is going to happen to them. But, well, they're out of the upper room now. They must have some confidence and courage now. Yeah, they do. Jesus is resurrected. But are you faith-filled and fearless? Northland will be a fearless and faith-filled church. We're not going to be scared. We're not going to say, well, we've never done that before. If the Spirit is telling us to do it. We're not going to be afraid of where our culture is moving. Oh, it's just becoming more ungodly. That means we'll become brighter. We're going to be faith-filled and fearless. And then they're sent. They're sent as what? Witnesses. Now, those who are sent now, they're, they're they're just ordinary men that are being sent out on this on this mission, this incredible mission. And, and the thing about these witnesses, they just didn't get a glimpse of Jesus. They've experienced Jesus. Let me ask you this. If you experienced Jesus, if you experienced him, because the thing about witnesses, yes, it's where we get our word martyr, but it's actually a legal term. Like when we think of witness, I think we are correct to go, all right, we, we call a witness to the stand, to testify. And here's the thing, these disciples, they are testifying to who Jesus was. They have experienced Jesus. Listen, you can't testify if you haven't experienced. So the idea of witness far exceeds those who are interested in Jesus. Listen, Jesus does not go on to change the world with people who are interested in him. He goes on to change the world with people who are passionate about him. Like, if you, here's the thing. We want, hey, if you're interested in Jesus, come, learn, hear well, what, what Jesus is all about. But if you've crossed from death to life, if you are a follower of Jesus, you need to change your status from interested in a relationship to passionate about a relationship. All right, this is the buck wild part, all right? Just, just like, so here's the thing. Like, they had been with Jesus. They had seen, seen Jesus. They'd been transformed by Jesus. And then how do they witness effectively? Well, like I said, there's, there's this legal aspect, and there's two elements of witness. There's a verbal aspect. What is that verbal aspect today? Well, it's, it's the thing about evangelism. We are inviting people into the good news story of King Jesus, who is in the process of making all things new. And so we're verbalizing that. Listen, you want to be made new. You want to be a new man. You want to be a new woman. You want to be a new parent. You want to be a new human being. Then here's what you need to do. You need to repent of your sin, place your faith in Jesus, who is the revolutionary king who came to planet earth, walked a perfect sinless life, died on the cross for your sin, my sin, the world's sin. They buried him, but three days later, he rose again from the dead, validating his claim as the cosmic king. So he is inviting you into that good news story of making all things new, including you. That's the verbal part. That's the gospel. It's the good news. That's what gospel means. Good news. But then, don't miss this church. Come in for this one. The other side of witness is credible. In other words, if a witness claims to be sharing the truth, they should be living the truth. 
In other words, what comes out of our mouth should align with what's coming out of our life. If a witness demonstrates a life contrary to what they say, then what they say is put into question. Like, so you come up to me in the lobby and you're like, Josh, man, have you gone to this Brazilian steakhouse yet? And I'll be like, no, haven't gone, gone to that one. Well, you should. Well, have you been there? No, I just hear. What? what? <laughs> Josh, ha- have you been to Epcot? And have you, have you rode the Guardians of the Galaxy roller coaster? No. Have you? No, but I hear it's great. What? <laughs> you, you, you see, it, it diminishes what you are telling me I should do. The lack of credibility diminishes the emphasis of the statement or the statement of truth. This is not just my opinion. But the reason the church's witness in America has declined is because our credibility has been diminished. And I want you to hear this too, church. We have now entered into a season of life in our culture where credibility our credibility is needed more than ever they don't care what we say anymore they care about what we're living and if what we're living begins to line up with what we're saying we will be a powerful force to be reckoned with Now, why why, why do we need that street cred? Well, look at where Jesus directs his disciples. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. I don't have time to unpack what it meant for them. Let me apply it to us today. I don't want you to think about geography. I actually want you to think about culture. So, Jerusalem. What's our Jerusalem? Well, here's our Jerusalem. It's church attenders who have never put their faith in King Jesus. I know even in a room this size and with about 3,000 people who watch us every weekend, there's a lot of you out there that you know Jesus, that you believe the, the, the kind of a theistic worldview, but you've never repented of your sin and you've never proclaimed Jesus as your King and Savior. So that's Jerusalem. Judea, that's de-church people, people who are once in church, no longer in church, or cultural Christians, what I call Christers. They hop in on Easter and they come on Christmas. So, so they, they have a theistic worldview, they have some knowledge, but they're not living in accordance with Jesus being their king. Samaria, uh, that, uh, those would entail Christian sects like Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, or some religions that teach a works-based theology. The, the, the Bible does not teach a works-based theology. You are saved not because of your works, but because of Jesus' finished work on the cross. And then you are not sanctified by your works. You are actually sanctified by trusting in his work and letting the Spirit work in you to shape and mold you like Jesus. It's this yielding and this surrender, and then the ends of the earth. That's where you would find your agnostics and your atheists, new age religions like Buddhism, Hinduism, scientists, I can't even say it, scientism, and then humanism. I want you to listen to this. Being a witness of Christ does not mean moving further away from the world, but deeper into it. 
And the further Jesus' witness moved into the world, the harder and more difficult it would become. Why? Because they would encounter people different from them, who spoke differently, who had a different worldview, who had a plethora of gods, who had different fears and hurts, who had different customs and even political affiliations. Be hard. Oh, don't. Come in for this. Lean in for this one. The deeper they would go in the world, the more distinct they would become. Not only in belief, but in behavior. Church, we are now living in a cultural context where we better, I'm telling you, we better realize that we have a distinct belief system and behavioral values than the world that is progressive, that is progressing towards secularism. You say, the atrocious horde. Duh! That's why you need the Spirit. That's why I need the Spirit. That's why Northland Church needs the Spirit. I got a lot of little pithy statements today. Here's another one. Revolutions never occurred by implementing the old ways of life, but the radical implementation of the new way of living. Our world is in desperate need of a good news revolution, and we are the only hope for them to experience that good news revolution. So we're not going to see a gospel revolution by tapping into the old way of living, but tapping into the radical implementation that Jesus purchased for us through his death and resurrection. And then the last element is this. Everybody okay? Okay. The last one, this is good. The gospel revolution has the most glorious and brightest destination. Verse 6. We see the disciples ask Jesus, Lord, are you, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? It's, it's in this statement that we see the disciples, they still don't fully understand what Jesus has come for, nor what he has fully accomplished in his death and resurrection. I mean, just think, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Think about their narrow scope, Israel. But then Jesus is going to redirect them to the globe. It's not about Israel. It's actually about the globe. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people group, you're going to be sent out to give witness to the cosmic restoration of all things. That's what Jesus has has done with his disciples. But then we see in verse 9... After he said this, he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now, they were, they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, he will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. So here's the question that you should be asking that I've asked. What is Jesus doing in heaven, and what will he do when he comes back to earth? Now, let me just answer that real quick. So why? So why why has he gone back into heaven? Well, in the first century, Jews, here's what they did when they got engaged. So when they got engaged, or the betrothal period, engagement betrothal, what the man would do, he would go back to his father's house, and he would build an addition to his father's house so that when he was done with the addition, he would go back, and he would get his bride, and they would have the consum, you know, they would have their marriage consummated, and he would bring, he would bring his bride back to the father's house where he had built the addition. Here's what Jesus tells his disciples in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. 
And so as he is now ascended into heaven, he has gone to his father's house. And he's there working on that addition. And when he's done with that addition, well, when will that be? Well, Matthew 24 says, and this gospel will be preached to all nations, and then the end will come. So there's much work left to be done. So as Jesus is working on the house for us where we can dwell with him forever, he wants us to be busy working because we were made for mission. But there's coming a day when it will be done and oh Jesus he will come back for his bride and that's us that's us but here's the here's the crazy thing we'll see this next week he's not going to come and bring us back but Revelation 21 tells us that the new city, Jerusalem, will actually come with Jesus. He, it will accompany Jesus. So our dwelling place will accompany Jesus, and he will bring the kingdom of God, the new city, Jerusalem, down with him, prepared for us to live with him forever. And when Jesus comes back, he will not come back as a suffering servant. He will come back as a conquering king. And he will make, and he will fully make all things new. So he wants to reorient us to this glorious and this brightest destination, the kingdom of God on earth. So here's my question. Are you part of the gospel revolution? Have you experienced a drastic and far-reaching change in ways of thinking and behaving? Have you experienced an overthrow of authority? It's no longer your life, it's his life. And then have you experienced Jesus meeting the deepest desires of your heart? Church, let me ask you this. Do you see yourself as the powerful distribution force that shares and shows this gospel revolution? And then are you reorienting your life towards what is coming? Are you part of the gospel revolution? Jesus, I pray that we would be your people, your gospel revolution people. I pray for Northland. You are stirring our hearts, but I pray that as you stir our hearts that we would not neglect understanding the stirring is all about the revolution that you stirred up over 2,000 years ago to share and to show this good news that you are in the process of making all things new. And Spirit, we need you. Oh, we need you. So that we can be who God has called us to be so that we can do what God has called us to do. Church, as you sit there, I'm going to, I've, asked, I've asked Pastor Marsh to, to sing this song. I want you to listen to the words, read the words, because they're so beautiful, and they speak to the fact that we were made for mission, that we should be on mission.